Last week I talked about uh, an article that was in the New York Times, if you remember. And that article interviewed a president of a seminary. And the president of the seminary didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, and did not believe in an afterlife of, or, or judgment. The president of a 200-year-old seminary. And, and as we talked about where our, our country is, I, I got an article yesterday uh, from the USA Today written by a Baptist minister who's retired. And it says, American churches must reject literalism and admit we get it wrong on gay people. Churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. So pastor writing this. The revelation is that LGBTQ people are just like the rest of us. Only LGBTQ. They are not perverts. They're not abnormal as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health once declared them to be. People don't choose their sexual orientation any more than they choose their race or their gender. This is what lay behind a recent comment by the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, that Mike Pence's quarrel, if he has one, it's not with the mayor. Your quarrel, sir, is with my creator. The United Methodists, one of America's most beloved denominations, are doubling down on their opposition to gay clergy and gay marriage by threatening expulsion to congregations that don't toe the line. Here's the corner we've painted ourselves into, he says. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Yet the Hebrew and Christian scriptures did not float down from heaven perfect and without error. They were written by men, and these men made mistakes. And he just goes through and he lists things in there that make no sense to us. Why God would ask people to do them, I'm not going to read them all. But he just goes on to say, it's difficult to watch good people, and churches are full of them, buy into the sincere but misguided notion that being a faithful Christian means accepting everything the Bible teaches. No, we don't impose the death penalty on adulterers or Sabbath breakers or rebellious children, nor do we chase women from God's house because they're menstruating or exclude men because of their handicaps. Yet all these things are commanded in the Bible. The time has come for Christians to take a deep breath and ask themselves, what does loving my neighbor and my enemy look like? And then proceed accordingly. Basically, what he does is he attacks the authority of Scripture throughout the whole thing. We knew this is where it was going to go years ago. This, was, this is no great surprise because at some point, you can't say, well, we just need to let people be people and stop preaching the truth. And now it's crept into the church and you've got a whole element of people who are saying, well, you know what? Maybe it's true. Maybe they are born that way. We did find scientific uh, data in brains of people that are LGBTQ and whatever else they want to add on to it. See, where do you draw the line? What if I want to have sex with a... a, a five-year-old because you know what I was just born that way that's just the way I was born isn't that okay see you can't stop one area and they compare uh, our sexual desire to race and gender how's that make you feel Riley can you change the color of your skin I don't think so even though Michael Jackson tried to you can't do it you can't change the color of your skin. Can you change your DNA from male to female or from female to male? You can't do that. Those are impossible. Can you change from having a sexual desire for your sex to a sexual desire for the opposite sex? Yes, you can, and it's been proven over and over and over again. It's a lie. It's a lie from the enemy. And in the name of, quote, love and not being a bigot, they're attacking people, and what they've done as they made the church basically shrink down from being a voice because we're afraid of being offensive to people. 
And so we don't speak the truth anymore. And now you've got people who are ministers this week and last week being touted in two of the most read publications around attacking the veracity of the Bible. So you're going to be on, a, on one end of the dividing line or the other on this issue. You better decide where you're going to be because the fight's coming to you. We, we didn't take the fight to them, so it's coming to us now. And we didn't decide if we're going to be warriors and we're going to stand on truth because, listen, SWAT is built, one of the main tenets of this ministry is God's Word is our authority and our starting point. If it's not our authority, then I don't need to be here for me. Because I, I can't buy into some parts of the Bible and not others. How do you pick and choose which part you're going to believe and which part you don't? It's either all true or it's not. And if it's not all true, then I'm wasting my time. Like Paul says, I'm, I'm to be pitied of all men that I've, I've wasted my life chasing this. But if it's true, we need to stand up and be men. And that's what God calls us to do. And last week we looked at these two questions. What do I do with my sin? And what do I do with Jesus? It's the two questions we have to deal with. Everybody has to deal with. And we, we went through and talked about you know, there's two ways of dealing with sin. The human way, which is to deflect, to not take responsibility. Or you can go to religious types of penance, if you will. Give money to this church and they'll make you feel good about, the, about who you are. Uh, you're a pretty good person. And, and they won't confront you over sin. You can go and talk to the pastor. Tell him how bad you struggle with pornography. And he'll say, I understand. I understand. It's okay. You know, just keep trying keep trying and he never really holds you to any kind of standard and it doesn't mean you beat people over the head with their sin but we have accountability within the christian community of telling people this is god's standard we don't relax the standard because we can't meet the standard and what our whole christian existence is this side of heaven is god conforming us to the image of his son as believers and the, the one thing that as I've studied for this week and gotten ready for uh, today that keeps coming back to me is the terrible, awful price that sin has brought on the world. It's awful. Jim, everything you've experienced, my brother, with your body going through the cancer is because of sin. And, 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 and it's because when Adam and Eve invited that into the world, it became a big snowball that just started rolling, throwing out consequences all over in ways that we could never imagine. So when you see little kids brutally murdered by their parents, it's a result of sin. When, when you see people do some of the most heinous things you could ever imagine, it's because of sin. And, and so, our problem is, we like to say that there's big sins and there's little sins. And it's all sin is bad. There is no little sin. One little sin sent Jesus to the cross. And, and as we look at this text today, what I hope that you'll see in chapter 27, verses 26 through 44, is we're looking at the crucifixion. <clears throat> And in the crucifixion, first of all, God shows us the remedy for our sin. The remedy for all this bad stuff that has happened, not only in our lifetime, but even before we were ever on the face of the earth. The remedy for that is dealt with in the crucifixion. But also we see in the crucifixion, God shows us the reason for suffering. Why there has to be suffering. And then finally, he shows us in the crucifixion the rescue of our soul. We see it very clearly. Here you've got this pure, innocent, unblemished, perfect life. One life. In the whole history of the world, there's only been one human being who's had a sinless life. He only loved. He loved His enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted Him. He never, never harmed anybody. All He did was good. And yet, He took the brunt 
first three hours was the physical part of man inflicting the punishment for sin. The, the last three hours was God's turning his face from his son, experiencing the wrath of God. Something he should never have had to endure, but it was ordained from the beginning of time. And we're going to see that today. So as you open up to that scripture, Matthew 27, 26, remember it's, it's, it's Friday morning. Jesus has had his kangaroo legitimate trial at 5 a.m., 15 minutes, a full 15 minutes with uh, Caiaphas and the religious leaders. It was the third trial. Then he goes to uh, Pontius Pilate. We saw that last week. And we looked at that issue of, of Jesus. What do we do with him? Because that's what Pilate said. He gave him an option of Barabbas, which means son of... Uh, it was Jesus, Barabbas, son of a father, little f, and then Jesus, son of the father, big f. This contrast. And he let the people choose. And the same people that were praising him one minute, Hosanna, Hosanna, are saying crucify him the next because the religious leaders twisted them and now we get to verse 27 and he says fine take him to be crucified and that's what we're going to see today and what's interesting as you read through this is you see that only one real verse is given to talk about the crucifixion itself in Matthew that's the, the Jewish people detested crucifixion. Guys, it was the most heinous way of execution in history. It, it was the most brutal form in history. So Matthew, it, he's not even focused on what happened except to say, and he was crucified. But you know what he does focus on? The people that were around him at the crucifixion how they responded to him, the mocking that took place, the, all the taunting that took place, all the different groups from the soldiers to the religious leaders to the criminals to the crowd, all taunting, all mocking. Have you ever been mocked? Have you ever had anybody mock you Everybody. like your kids? When, it is not a fun feeling when you're mocked. Imagine being the king of the universe can snap your fingers and life as we know it would cease to exist. And these people are mocking. They have no idea. No idea who they're dealing with. They're ignorant. They're ignorant people. But really in this passage, you see the ultimate wickedness of man. Don't you? Because you have the perfect human, the perfect God-man who's done nothing but good and while he's going through this horrendous... Remember, he has already had his back torn open through the scourging where they take a, a piece of wood with leather strips on it that has shards of bone, shards of metal that literally will rip the flesh off the back and they give him lashes to, to prepare him so that he doesn't spend too long on the cross. And then they... They did that before. And, and meanwhile, while they're doing this, they're just making fun of Him. Yeah. I mean, for us, that, that's almost unheard of. That you would do that to somebody in such agony and such pain. It was very brutal. And all the while, Satan's just laughing, thinking he's accomplishing something great to do this to the one who is the greatest ever. And... What we see in this passage is really the greatest six hours in human history. Because, because of this six hours, our sin's gone. Because of this six hours, it takes our sin away. Everything we've ever done bad, everything that we will ever do that's bad that would separate us from God, everything that would ever earn us death, every evil thought, every sin of omission. I mean, guys, I'm going to tell you, I... When I was a chaplain for the Houston Rockets, there was a couple of guys on the team that were multi-multi-millionaires. They were all-star players. They had all the money in the world. They had all the cars and houses you want, all the women you could want, all the pleasure they could want. They were absolutely miserable. You know why? Because in their heart of hearts, they did not have the forgiveness that they needed. They had everything they wanted, they thought, but not what they really needed. And because of this six hours, we, we have 
access to the forgiveness that, that will give us hope that gets us through anything. It's the hope that Peter said, you, you know, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within inside you. It's because when people see you going through incredibly difficult circumstances, they see in you a hope that goes, wow, how can you be like that? And I think sometimes as believers, it's hard for us to remember that. We don't like, let's just be really candid. Do we, do we really like thinking about the crucifixion? Do we really like going through the process of what happened that day? I mean, how many of you guys have seen The Passion of the Christ? Most of you, right? Was that easy? And that doesn't even come close to what it really was like because we know deep down as we're watching that, that it's a movie. But I want you to transport yourself for a second into the moment of actually seeing somebody have that happen to them. It would be a very different story for you. You, you, would, be, you would probably want to throw up to see what's happened. I remember when my best friend got killed right before he died. I saw him after he impacted a tree going 450 miles an hour. This is a guy I loved. All right, he, he was my best friend in the Marine Corps. And I was the first one on the accident scene. And when I got there, if you can imagine a body hitting a, a tree going 450 miles an hour as he punched out because he didn't get a shoot. It just went right into the tree, took out the top of a pine tree, just tore it in half, his body did. And when I saw him, I wanted to throw up. Because it just it mutilated his face and his body and it and this was my friend. This is Jesus we're talking about here. The perfect one, the Lamb of God, the one who healed the sick, who said to the children, Come. This is Jesus. And I think a lot of times that we don't we don't like reflecting on it because it's painful, but we need to reflect on it. You know, we talk about remembering 9-11. We should remember this date. We should remember what happened on the cross. We should remember the crucifixion. It's like my daughter Rachel. Four years ago, she had a heart transplant. And, and you know what? I will take her and I'll bring her over and I'll show her pictures on my phone. I'll say, Rachel, look at this. Remember this? This was, this was before you got your heart. And I'll show her pictures with tubes coming out of her. And she's unconscious and she's got that tube in her mouth and she doesn't like to see it. And I said, I want you to see this because I want you to know you were going to die. But God gave you a new heart and you never should forget what your life would have been like. And for us guys, what Jesus took that day should have been for us. And that's why we need to remember. So as we go into this, I really hope you will allow yourself to feel to feel what He felt. To know that He is the remedy for our sin. He, he, he is the, the reason for suffering is because God had to do it that way because of sin. Sin had to be punished. And He's the rescue of our souls. So Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 35, guys, that's all Matthew says about the crucifixion and when they crucified him. He doesn't say about them nailing the nails in his hands. He doesn't tell us how they did it. He doesn't say what it was like as it went on. He just said, and when they had crucified him. That's all he gives. 
because he's focused on the evilness of man in this whole situation, hoping that the readers, the Jewish people that are reading this, would be so convicted that they would come to their senses. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. He was mocked. Crown of thorns. A wooden scepter. They beat him with it. They spit. This is not the first time he's been spit at. Remember, when they arrested him, they spit on him. The Jewish people spit on him. They punched him in the face. And the Romans do the same thing. But the Romans are just kind of ignorant. These are 600 soldiers that are attached to the Antonio Fortress that went out and arrested him. And to them, he's just another rebel, just another guy who wants to overthrow the Roman government. So they're doing what they do. They had this little game they would play where when somebody was an insurrectionist, they would give him a mock robe and a mock scepter and they would taunt him and beat him because they knew they couldn't do anything in response because they were Roman soldiers. They held the upper hand. They had no idea the person they were doing that to was the king of the universe. No idea that one day each one of those soldiers are going to have to stand before that very one. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine that day? What that's going to be like for them? To stand before the very one that they were beating and to have to go back. And there's nothing that can be done with that. I mean, there's nothing. Because when they stand before him, it's going to be too late for anything to happen. He's the remedy for our sins. The crucifixion, guys, was ordained before time. And you know how I know that? Flip over to Isaiah real quick. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. You know, rabbis don't like to teach Isaiah 53. The Jewish people don't like to discuss Isaiah 53 because it's a suffering Messiah it talks about. This is 700 years before Christ. Who has believed what He has heard from us? Verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. This is talking about Jesus. Let me ask you, do you think that Jesus, after He had been pulverized and beaten and spit upon, spittle on His face, His back torn open by the scourging, and He was so disfigured, Jim Caviezel in The Passion of the Christ, they made Him look pretty unattractive. Uh, and that whole scene. And I don't know if you knew this, but when, when they were doing the scourging scene with Jim Caviezel, the guy who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, they had him up there, and one time they had this board on his back, this board that they would swing and they would hit. And one time when they swung, it missed the board and it caught him on the rib. And he got this big laceration on it and he grimaced and it hurt really, really bad. He took one little glancing blow. <coughs> Jesus took 40 blows. He was, he, he was a man who was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it says. 
Not only the grief from the physical pain, but the grief of rejection of people that He came. He says He came to His own in John, but His own received Him not. They rejected Him. Do you know what it's like to be rejected by somebody you love? That you care for? That you... I mean... You want them to see the truth. You want them to get it and you want to help them understand and they just reject you because they just want to do what they want to do. He said, and as one from, one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Guys, that does not mean that when you have a cold, Jesus' death on the cross, that, that, that verse does not mean your cold is going to be healed because he died on the cross. It's talking about your eternal salvation, your soul destiny, the forgiveness of your sins. When he took those stripes, it was to pay the penalty for your sins. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before His shears is silent, He opened not His mouth. This is prophesied 700 years. So when He stood before Pilate, and said nothing, Pilate was amazed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He was stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, he was innocent. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore our pain. He bore our sin penalty. He bore everything that sin brought upon us. He took that day like a laser beam. God focused down His judgment on Jesus at that moment. So much so that Jesus looked up and He goes, Dad, why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? As part of God's plan. He was a perfect sacrifice. He was innocent in verse 3, in verse 19, in verse 23, in verse 24. All those verses talk about his innocence. He, he did nothing to deserve it. But like Genesis 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. God always knew what He was going to do with Joseph. He revealed it to Joseph in a dream. In the same way, Jesus tried to explain to the disciples over and over, Son of Man must be crucified, guys. I've got to go up. I'm going to be persecuted by the leaders. He's telling them. Why? Because He is the remedy for our sin. There's no other remedy. You cannot do one thing to make God love you apart from Jesus. Just receiving Him. You do good things, but they all have ill-tainted motives. The only reason Jesus, I mean, the only reason God loves you is because of Jesus Christ. Everything we bring to God is a filthy rag. Revelation 13:8 says this. It says that the book that is talking about uh, those whose names were written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That, that was the name of it. The, the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. That was mentioned before the foundation of the earth. He was always going to be slain. When He came, it says, when He was born, you remember what it said back in the first chapter of Matthew we read? He, was, he came what? To save people from their sin. That's us. 
He's the remedy for our sin. Ephesians 1, 4, and 6 says, Before the foundation of the world, He chose us to be adopted into His family. And what was the adoption price? Stephen, you deal with adoptions. Every adoption has an adoption fee. Our adoption fee is the crucifixion. It's the cross. Acts 2.23, when Peter's preaching to the religious leaders, he said, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is not something that was just happened. It was foreordained, preordained, and part of God's plan to deal with sin. Are we grateful for it? Do we live like we're grateful for it? Do we take it for granted like my daughter? My daughter's four years since her part transplant. And, and I, I remind her, Rachel, you know every day's a gift. You've got to live like every day's a gift. Don't focus on what you don't have. Don't focus on what you can't do. Focus on what God has given you to do. And this is us, guys. We do the same thing. Oh man, I can't do this or I've got to deal with this. Or, uh, and no matter what it is, why can't my life be better? I was talking to a guy not too long ago. You know, I read my Bible. Man, I give money to the church. I do all this stuff. Why does my life suck? That's what he said. And I go, did you just say that? I said, are you a believer? Yeah. God's given you an ability to live without sin. Paul says, listen, the things that wait for us on the other side far outweigh whatever we deal with here in 2 Corinthians 4.16. we got to focus not on the temporary, but on the eternal. Not on the things that we see, but the things that are unseen. And, and when you think about what Jesus did on the cross, you think about the crucifixion, guys, what it does is it gives you perspective. Amen. But we don't like to think about it because it's painful. It's a painful reminder to us of our flaws. It's a painful reminder to us of our sin. And that's exactly what it should be. No more remember 9-11. Not that we shouldn't remember that. But what about remember the crucifixion? What about remember what we did to Jesus? Because had anybody in this room, anybody, had been able to pull off a life with no sin, Jesus would not have had to do that. But He had to because sin infects everybody except for Him. And, and, and guys, really the way this should manifest itself in us as we think about this is we should hate sin. Amen. Not the sinner, sin. Amen. Any sin, every sin did that to Jesus. And I'm just going to be really candid. It's been so hard to work through this because... I haven't always had that attitude about certain sins. Man, there's just some things that I, I blow off. Every sin did that to Jesus. And it's time for us to be men and own it and say, you know what? He's the remedy. The crucifixion was what God used. And I'm grateful. And I'm going to live a life that shows I'm grateful. I'm going to stop pussyfooting around to use the word my dad used. That's what he calls it. When you tiptoe around, you're afraid to call out sin. And listen, you don't have to hate the sinner to call out sin. Especially with our brothers. It has to start within the church. I have Christian brothers that are making bad choices and nobody wants to say anything to them because, well, that's their life. That's their choice. They profess to be a believer. And it's not right. Sin did that to Jesus. My sin. You start with your sin. But He's the remedy for our sin. What He did that day was the remedy for our sin. Well, it also is the reason for our suffering. The crucifixion. Sin is the reason for that, guys. When you offend a holy God, God said there will be death. There will be death. Not just the physical death, the spiritual separation 
And, and the tragedy to me about Adam in the Garden of Eden is when God came to him, instead of running to God, trusting in the Father's love, saying, God, I am so sorry. I blew it. Please forgive me. Have mercy. You are a good father. And I went and did something really stupid. Help me figure this out. Instead of doing that, what does he do? He goes and hides because he's afraid. And our kids do the same thing with us. Why? Because they're afraid of us. What I'm trying to teach my girls more than anything else is, girls, I want you to come to me when you blow it. I want you to trust that I love you and I want to help you when you blow it. That's when I want to be a dad to you. Don't be afraid of consequences. Trust in me to help navigate through the consequences. That's what God wants us to do with Him. But there has to be suffering, guys. When, when, when God says... You do this, this is going to happen. He's fought. There has to be justice. And so the reason for suffering is sin. And the crucifixion, God shows us that. That His own Son went and took that brunt of it. It says when He was crucified. Back, going back to Matthew 27. When He was crucified. Those little words, when He was crucified. When they had crucified him. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He, he became what we should have gotten. The curse of God went on him instead of on us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The reason he did that was to bring us to the Father. What we read in Isaiah says He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds were healed. God's purpose from the beginning was that sin had to be atoned for and paid for. And so what He did in the Old Testament is He told the Jewish people, every year I want you to get a lamb. And I want you to get a lamb that's perfect. And every year that family is going to bring that lamb to the priest the priest will inspect it make sure it's perfect then the father of that family will put his hand on that lamb and symbolically transfer all the sin of that family every year and the priest will then take the knife and slit the throat of that lamb as a sacrifice for the sins and the family's sins are forgiven that was the foreshadowing of what would happen on calvary at Golgotha. That was the foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to have to go through. It was the foreshadowing of the reason for suffering. Sin. And the crucifixion. And we get a benefit from it. And we should be grateful. And I, 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 I again reiterate that when you realize something incredibly significant has happened for you, that that is the greatest single event in your God life. I don't know that if you really treasure it that way, but God's salvation of you is the greatest single event in your life. It's better than your wedding day. It's better than your child's birthday, your first child's birth, second child's birth, whatever child's birth. Your salvation is the greatest single event in your life. Right. Amen. But we don't live like that. And I'm telling you, one of the reasons I believe we don't live like that is because the crucifixion and all that stuff is kind of pushed off to the side because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it. We don't like talking about it because it reminds us of the terrible price Christ had to pay for us, for me, for you. But we should be reminded. And that's why Matthew's writing this. He's writing this. And you know what's so key in this passage, guys? He talks about... The soldiers mocked him. The crowd derided him. The religious leaders mocked him. Over and over you see it. Even the criminals mocked him. All these people. That's what Matthew's focused on here is the evilness of man. And what he's trying to say is, we are evil. We're not good. Doesn't matter what Disney says. We are not good. We are, sorry, Rod. I know you're a big Disney fan. So, and, and, and then get this. I love this. You know what? 
God is so good even, even in this crucifixion moment, even when Jesus is struggling. And we're going to get next week, we're going to go to the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross and we're going to look at the actual death, what happens right at the end. But as He's going through the streets, the Romans say, hey, you, you come over here to Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is modern day Libya. And He just picks this guy. And, and he, you carry his cross. Now they had three types of crosses. They had an X cross, they had a T cross, and then they had our the one that we generally use as a cross. Most people believe it was that kind of a cross that he carried. And and most of the time it says they would just carry the the width, you know, the horizontal beam. But some manuscripts seem to indicate this was the whole cross, like a two hundred pound cross. And, and they got Simon because Jesus couldn't do it. He couldn't even hardly walk. And I thought about Simon. And I thought about him being identified with Jesus that day. How God sovereignly said, Simon, I want you to come be identified with my son today. And his name's recorded for history. 2,000 years we're still reading Simon's name. He, and, and to guys, that's part of it that we have to be publicly identified with Jesus. And, and Simon is a model that he comes along. He doesn't want to. It says they pressed him into it. It means it was uncomfortable. And sometimes with Jesus, let's just be honest, it's uncomfortable for us to be publicly identified with him. But Simon came in there. And then the other thing that I see is he carried his cross. We have to carry that cross. We have to carry the cross. Jesus said, you want to follow Me, you've got to carry your cross. And so Simon comes on and he does. He carries the cross. And you know what happens? This is a beautiful thing. Look at this. You know the book of Mark, who it was written for? It was written from Peter's perspective by John Mark. Many people believe to the Roman Christians. or, or they, they weren't Christians, but they were Romans trying to get them to buy into the Gospel. If you turn over to... Mark chapter 15, and look at verse 21. And it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now why in the world would you put the names of his boys in this passage? Unless it was significant. Why would you do that? But if you flip over, if John Mark was written to the Roman, you know, future, what I call future Christians, they hadn't become believers yet, but it was to tell them about Jesus and for people to use to tell other Romans, what book would you go to to hear about Romans would be the book of Romans itself, right? If you look back in the last chapter of Romans, chapter 16, and you look in Romans 16, verse 13. Paul is giving these greetings to people in Rome. And it says, greet, verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Do you know who his mother was? They believe his mother was Simon of Cyrene's wife. And this is the Rufus who was mentioned in Mark. So that day, that day that Simon was pressed into service meant he got pressed into the kingdom. He was probably a Jewish pilgrim just coming back for Passover. Had no idea his life would be forever changed and impacted. So much so that his son Rufus was going to be in Rome. In fact, there was a, a martyr named Alexander that they believe was his other son. One of the first martyrs over in Rome. There's a reason for suffering. And it's sin. But God takes it. He took the greatest, most heinous act of, of uh, execution in history and turned it into a symbol of hope for us. Why? Because He's the rescuer of our soul. 
He's the rescuer of our soul. Matthew focuses on our evil rejection of good, our rejection of Jesus, and ultimately our rejection of God. He doesn't even really talk about the crucifixion. And I want to just fill in a few of the pieces here for you with a description so you can get the full taste of what Jesus got that day as we close out our time. Crucifixion originated in Persia and was passed on to the Greeks and then the Romans perfected it and actually made it famous. And it's estimated around the time of Jesus that the Romans uh, crucified over 30,000 people. Now, none of the Gospels tell us exactly how Jesus was crucified or secured to the cross, but we know from John's account that Thomas says he wanted to see the marks of the nails. So he got nails. Not everybody got nails. Sometimes they just strapped him. He got nails. And they didn't put it in the hand. They put it right here in the wrist. So that if they put it in the hand, it would rip. Your hand wouldn't support it. But here, it would support it. So what they did was first they drove a nail into your feet. You crossed your feet and they drove a nail through them to hold them on the bottom. And then they put your hands out. They would stretch them and put them out like this, and they drove nails right in there. Now, when they drove those sharp, like uh, almost railroad spike nails in, it would sever nerves, it would sever um, uh, just tendons and all that stuff, but it would also expose nerves so that when you had any kind of movement, any movement, it would radiate pain throughout your limb, wherever it was. And so... Based on the writings, uh, other historical writings, it says Jesus was placed on a cross as it lay flat on the ground. First his feet were nailed to the upright beam, then his arms stretched with the nails through the wrists, just like I described. The cross was then picked up and then dropped into a hole. And when it hit the bottom of that hole, guess what? The whole thing shook, causing excruciating pain as the weight of his body pulled at the already torn flesh around the nails. Now, this is a quote from John MacArthur's quoting a guy named Frederick Farrar who wrote a book called The Life of Christ. He said, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, a long continuation of torment, a horror of anticipation, mortification of the intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured, but stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer relief of going unconscious. In other words, you would experience so much pain that normally it would almost take you to the point of passing out, but then it wouldn't get quite to that point. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds that were inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself at whose approach man usually shudders most bear the aspect of a delicious and an exquisite release. In other words, you wanted to die. You just wanted to die. One thing is clear. The first century executioners were not like the modern ones. For they did not seek a quick, painless death like a lethal injection. They didn't, well, you just fall asleep. Nor the preservation of any measure of dignity. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated him. And it's important that we understand this for it helps us realize the agony of Christ's death. And then he goes on to quote Dr. Truman Davis. He said, at, at the latter point of the process, the arms fatigue. What happens is they're trying to push up on the feet because the hanging down is putting pain on the feet. So when they would push, kind of push up on the feet to bring relief to the, the pain here, 
they, it would relieve here, but then there would be pain there. Then you'd let go to give relief to the feet. This would hurt. So it was this accordion back and forth of pain between the hands and the feet. There was great waves of cramps over the whole body, deep, relentless, throbbing pain, with, and the inability to push himself upward, hanging by his arms. The pectoral muscles become paralyzed. The intercoastal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but you can't exhale. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream and the cramps subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain cycle of twisting and joint-rending cramps, uh, it brings intermittent partial asphyxiation. Searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then the real, another agony begins. A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to put pressure on the heart. It's now almost over. The compressed heart struggles to pump heavy, thick blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. That's from a medical viewpoint by Dr. Truman Davis. It says he emptied himself in Philippians by taking the form of a servant being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Guys, because of this, our sin is forgiven. Because of this, we can have hope when we suffer here. Because of this, we know our, our suffering is not eternal. And because of this, our soul has been redeemed. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul sums it up. He says, nothing we deal with here compares to what we're going to get on the other side. So no matter what's going on in your life, no matter if it's a, a relational issue, a medical issue, a financial issue, whatever it is, if you're His, nothing, nothing should compare to what He's done for you. And so don't focus. Don't let the enemy distract you and take you out of the fight by pain. It doesn't mean you don't deal with real things in your life. I'm not saying that. I'm saying put them in perspective of what we just covered, what He's done for you. Guys, there's no greater thing in the world than what He did for you. And, 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 and I just think we need to be reminded of that. And I think that's what Matthew does. And I hope when you leave here today that you don't leave here going, wow, that's just too hard. I hope you leave here going, He did that for me. He did it for me. And man, that should make you, that should make you feel light as air that He would do that for you. That's why I'm so passionate, man, because I know He did it for me. He did it for me. As filthy as I've been, and the, the things that I've done, He did it for me. And that just makes me want to run through a wall for Him. And I hope it, it will you. Let's pray.